On this episode, we debate Pado communion. So join us as we build, fight, protect, lead. This is the patriarchy. Rise up, for men of God have done with lesser. <laughs> For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That was 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. I am Pastor Joseph Spurgeon, and you are listening to the Patriarchy Podcast, a ministry of Sovereign King Church. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's been a while since I've been able to release an episode. The past couple of months have been pretty demanding on me. In October and November, I spoke at four conferences and retreats, assisted our church in hosting a Reformation festival. That's where we obtained permits to close off the streets in front of the church. We create an event that's kind of akin to a Renaissance festival meets a block party. We give out free food, free uh, big old giant turkey legs and bread bowl soup and free drinks and uh, bouncy houses. It's just a fun time and we celebrate church history. I also embarked on a hunting trip in West Virginia and uh, where I saw a nice big black bear. Add to that the usual pastoral duties, and time was scarce to produce content for this podcast, but enough with excuses. You don't need excuses. Today we delve into something quite special. I actually recorded this during that hectic period, but held on to it until I can find time to edit it. So uh, now you're going to get it released. But today, we are set to debate the topic of paedo-communion. Who should be admitted to the Lord's table? Formal debates on this topic are rare. I've actually, I think I've only seen one out there and you had to pay for it behind a paywall. So I'm eager, very eager to present this one to you. You know, the debate over paedo-communion is a recent phenomenon in Reformed circles. Now, that's not to imply that the Reformed Church lacked an opinion on it prior to the last century. Uh, In fact, John Calvin addressed some of the arguments in his era, and the Reformed Church was pretty much settled on the matter. Uh, The major Reformed confessions were Pado-Baptist, but not Pado-Communionist. Yet, in the latter half of the 20th century, and the first decades of the 21st, The debate has resurfaced, particularly with the rise of the CREC. Thus, it's time for us to return to our sources and do hard work again. 
It's my earnest prayer that men of integrity will use this opportunity to sharpen one another. My brothers in Christ, I hope this debate serves as an encouragement to you. Here is actually the question to be debated, which is this. When very young baptized children of believers become capable of participating in a common family meal, they are capable of examining themselves and discerning the Lord's body and thus should be welcome to the Lord's Supper. I'll say it one more time. When very young baptized children of believers become capable of participating in a common family meal, they are capable of examining themselves and discerning the Lord's body and thus should be welcome to the Lord's Supper. And so with me today taking the affirmative is Toby Sumter. Toby Sumter is pastor of King's Cross Church in Moscow, Idaho. He is a co-host of Cross Politics Show and Podcast. He's the author of Blood Brought World and No Mere Mortals and husband of Jenny and father of four. And so welcome, Toby, to the show. Thanks very much, Mr. Spurgeon. <laughs> He's going to call me Mr. Spurgeon today. I tried to get him to start with Lord, but that's because my uh, other uh, uh, combatant on the show is named Joseph as well. So Joseph Wiseman is the the one who is going to take up the negative here. And he is a uh, teacher and tutor. He operates a book business called Bareth Press with his wife, Jamie. They republish classic reformed uh, uh, literature. He's originally from the UK. He now lives in Oklahoma with his wife and their two children, Jacob, who's three, and Abigail, that's one. Joseph is also a member of the RCUS, Grace Reformed Church in Rogers, uh, Arkansas, and aligns most closely with the Scottish Covenanter tradition. And so, Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mr. Spurgeon. Great to be here. So uh, we are ready to do some battle here. It's, it, we we did recently a Pado baptist debate, and so if you remember that, the format will be very similar. Um, but one of the feedback that we got was that the cross-examination was not long enough. And so we will uh, give a little longer time on that. So let me run the format here for you. We will start with two opening statements, uh, 15 minutes each. Following that opening statement, there will be a rebuttal of 10 minutes each. Following rebuttal, there will be a cross-examination, eight minutes each, and they will get to do that twice. So uh, on the cross-examination, each one of them will get two eight minute segments of asking the other person questions. And if you've watched any formal debates before, you know this is really where the debate really gets good. It's where it really happens. And then finally, we will have a closing statement of seven minutes each. And so um, something, uh, I, I watched a James White and uh, Bill Shisko debate a while back on Pado uh baptism. This has been years ago. It's actually the thing that moved me over from Baptist to Pado Baptist. And but one of the things that the moderator there said was get out a sheet of paper and kind of just write down two sides of this and just make notes and follow along and trace along the arguments so that you can follow along. So if maybe you're not able to do that, you're driving or whatever, but if anytime you can get that and you can just follow along the arguments, it's very helpful. And it was very helpful then for me started me on a trajectory to which I uh, went from being a Reformed Baptist to a Presbyterian. 
and I'm thankful for it. So um, with that said, I think we're ready to begin. You men ready to begin? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <clears throat> All right. We will begin since Toby is uh, Pastor Sumter is taking the affirmative. We will start with him. I'll get the counter uh, going here. As soon as you see the counter, as soon as you start, the uh, the counter will start. We'll do it that way. All right. Well, thank you. I want to begin my time by actually thanking you all uh, for the opportunity. Thanks, Joseph. And uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, Lord Spurgeon. Um, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful uh, to be with you all. And uh, I think it's pretty fun. I actually, my grandpa and grandma used to live in Rogers, Arkansas. Wow. And when I was little, that's where I would go to see them. Um, so that's, that's pretty neat. Um, the central question in this debate is going to be, I think, probably going to come down, I'm guessing, uh, to whether the instructions that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11 are meant to become the controlling dominant paradigm uh, for worthy participation in the Lord's Supper. That's how we've framed the, um, the statement. It has to do with uh, worthy participation, has to do with discerning the Lord's body. Um, and that language comes from 1 Corinthians 11. So the question is whether that language is meant to become the controlling dominant paradigm for worthy participation in the Lord's Supper, or whether the instructions there are to be taken in their context as additional instruction within the rest of the biblical context, the rest of the biblical narrative. Uh, I would posit that making those instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 the central controlling instructions um, sort of uh, toppling everything else that's given to us in Scripture distorts the rest of the context of Scripture, while if we take the rest of Scripture as the dominant controlling paradigm and then add these instructions and take them seriously uh, to that overarching picture, we, we actually take the apostle as he meant, to be, he, he meant himself to be taken, and so don't twist the rest of um, the biblical paradigm. So um, I actually want to use most of this opening statement to summarize what the rest of the Bible teaches about the place of children in the covenant, and then finish by examining, pun intended, the particular instructions given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. So I want to begin with what Jesus says about the place of children in the kingdom. Uh, this is from Matthew 19. Then they were brought unto him, little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And there are just two quick things to note here. First, when Jesus says, Let the little children come unto me, he doesn't say, If they can come on their own. Uh, the whole context is clear that the little children are actually being brought to Jesus. And Jesus welcomes the little children and instructs his disciples not to forbid them. Second, Jesus clearly teaches that little covenant children are full citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Not only are they full citizens, but in important ways, they're exemplary citizens. Uh, Jesus makes this point even clearer in Matthew 18, just a chapter before. Again, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him, set him in the midst of them and said, verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, several things to note here. First, Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom are little children. It seems strange. It seems a strange thing to call little children the greatest in the kingdom and then exclude them from the kingdom meal. 
Second, Jesus makes their humility and their faith the model for grown-ups and adults. Grown-ups, Jesus says, must become like little children. Again, if faith is a prerequisite for coming to the Lord's Supper, Jesus says that the little children have the kind of faith that adults must emulate, not the other way around. Third, the instruction once again includes receiving little children in the name of Jesus, and the promise is that in so receiving little children, we receive Jesus himself. I would suggest that the implied warning here is that not receiving little children then can be a form of not receiving Jesus. And finally, Jesus gives a very stern warning about causing little ones to stumble. Um, And with that, it's striking that he says um, that they believe in him, um, these little children do. Closely related to all this would be the overarching shape of God's covenant relations going back to Abraham, where God promised to be the God of Abraham and his children after him. But the particular thing I want to point to is the organic nature of this covenant nurture. Uh, In the passage where God is about to tell Abraham his plan to destroy Sodom, the Lord says, For I know him, speaking of Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. That's Genesis 18, 19. So the ordinary means by which covenant children grow up into mature faith is through the instruction of their parents. We see something similar, of course, in Deuteronomy 6, where parents are instructed to teach their children to love God all day long, everywhere. Again, Ephesians 6, where fathers are particularly instructed to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In the Psalms, David says he learned to trust God at his mother's breast, Psalm 22. Timothy learned the scriptures as a young child. There's no indication in scripture of withholding some element of ordinary covenant life until a prescribed level of maturity. Instead, the pattern is covenant immersion. Maybe that's another pun. I don't know. With tons of instruction. Uh, Closely related to Psalm 127, which says that children are the heritage of the Lord. Covenant children are holy to God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. And in Ezekiel, this is part of God's charge against his people. Not only did they sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons, the prophet says they sacrificed God's children to fires of idols. Thou hast slain my children, Ezekiel 16, 21 says. So they belong to God. The overarching connection here is simply the point that children of believers have always been accepted and received as full members of the covenant. They are learning to trust as nursing infants, and their praises are part of the worshiping warfare of the saints. They belong to God. They are given to us as his inheritance. And there's no indication anywhere in scripture of a two-tiered covenant membership. There's no indication anywhere in scripture of a communicant and a non-communicant member. There's only the one covenant people of God. And this is particularly affirmed in the New Covenant in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, which incidentally comes right before 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea, did all eat the same spiritual meat and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then skipping a few verses, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Again, skipping a couple more verses. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Notice that Paul is belaboring the continuity of God's covenant dealings between the Exodus and the Christians in Corinth. Paul is essentially saying, you have baptism? Well, they had baptism. Uh, You have spiritual food and drink? They had spiritual food and drink. You have Christ? They had Christ. And these things were written down as examples 
for us, that we should not lust as they lusted, so that we should not become idolaters and complainers and be destroyed like they were. And notice here, Paul's emphasis on all of Israel. All of Israel, past of the sea. It's, you know, and famously, Pharaoh offered to let you know, all the adult males go. But of course, no, the, the women and the children needed to go. All of Israel uh, needed to go. All of Israel passed through the sea and were baptized, even the little children? Yes. And all Israel ate spiritual food and spiritual drink in the wilderness, even the little children? Yes. Everyone who takes Paul at his word here has to at least accept that Old Covenant Israel practiced paedobaptism and paedocommunion. All of Israel was baptized. All of Israel ate spiritual food ate and drank spiritual drink. All the children were baptized. All the children were communed in Old Israel. Of course, this whole passage is a warning, but notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say, and this would be a great opportunity to say it, by the way, um, this, my friends, is why you really should wait until your children are old enough to make a profession of faith before participating in the Lord's Supper. Look what happened to them. Right? I mean, that would, be, that would be a great moment to do that. No, instead, he aims his warnings particularly at the grown-ups. It wasn't little children with inadequate catechesis that caused God to destroy them. It was the grown-ups organizing the sex rave at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the particular warning is against pride. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But as we've seen, that is the particular temptation of grown-ups, elders, anyone who has gone to a modern seminary. Jesus says that we must become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven, not the other way around. And as it turns out, it was the little children, actually, who they were communing in the wilderness, who ended up going into the promised land after their parents had all died in the wilderness. So, Pato communion for the win. Uh, one last point from 1 Corinthians 10 before turning to 1 Corinthians 11. The exhortation is to flee idolatry. And that exhortation is then put in the context explicitly of celebrating communion. This is still 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Sorry, the, the cup that we share, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. And Paul goes on to ask how Christians can eat at the table of the Lord and the table of devils. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 21. And I just simply note the clear assumption is that all the members of the covenant partake of the bread and wine. We many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And notice that the oneness of our body is, is expressed in the oneness of our partaking of the one bread. In this sense, non-communicant member is an oxymoron. A, a member is, is a communicant. We are members of one body because we are partakers of one bread. And finally, Paul points to the Old Testament sacrificial meals. And again, all the indications are that the whole family participated in those sacrificial meals. This finally brings us to 1 Corinthians 11. But the point of this overview is simply to paint the context of inclusion of children in the covenant. Given the overwhelming weight and momentum of Scripture, we ought to interpret the instructions and warnings that Paul gives in chapter 11 in the context of chapter 10, but also the rest of Scripture. This is just a normal rule of interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture. And what we find there is that the sins of division and selfishness and partaking unworthily are primarily being committed by adults. Adults are eating and drinking without thought of some who are being excluded. Adults are getting drunk. In this way, they're not really celebrating the Lord's Supper at all because they're not examining themselves or discerning the Lord's body. And so Jesus is judging the church there, and some of them are weak and sick and some have died. Therefore, 
The positive instructions that Paul concludes with are to wait for one another, make sure everybody gets some, and to eat in their own homes if they're really hungry. So the requirements of worthy participation in the Lord's Supper are waiting for one another and recognizing one another as members of the body of Christ and not treating the Lord's Supper like super China buffet or a frat party. This means positively that we are required to see the Lord's Supper as a sign and seal of Christ's sacrificial body and blood that unites us together to Christ and to one another. Very young children, as model citizens of the kingdom, as Jesus says, are fully capable of understanding that the Lord's Supper is a special meal with Jesus and his people. In the same way that they can understand dinner time with their own families, they can understand in a childlike way that they are part of God's family and they understand forgiveness of sins. Otherwise, why do we discipline them? Furthermore, the emphasis of warning that Paul is giving is on dividing the body of Christ and leaving weaker members out. It seems that this warning applies most directly to those who would exclude little children from the meal. Jesus says that the faith of little children is exemplary in the kingdom of God, that we must become like little children to enter, and that whoever receives a little child in his name receives him. But many in the Reformed tradition have gotten this exactly backwards. We've made mature adult faith the prerequisite for communing and told little children that when they grow up and have faith like adults, then they can participate in the Lord's Supper. And that's backwards. But if we recall God's ordinary means of covenant nurture, this should, be, uh, this should be concerning. This is like saying when you grow up big and strong, then you can have some food. And then we wonder why many of them don't grow up big and strong. So um, when very young baptized children of believers become capable of participating in a common family meal, they're capable of examining themselves and discerning the Lord's body, and thus should be welcome to the Lord's Supper. One last comment here. Notice that I'm not claiming that infants conked out in bucket seats should be force-fed or anything like that. But as young children become capable of participation in family meals, including basic instructions on how to participate, put the, you know, put food in your mouth, that kind of thing, um, the same should be true at God's covenant meal. In the same way that we teach very young children to pray, to sing, teach them catechism questions and answers, elders of the church ought to welcome young children to the Lord's Supper for the same kind of covenant nurture, teaching them how to examine themselves and how to discern the Lord's body. Lastly, I would simply argue that while no one intends to do so, I'm afraid that withholding the table from young covenant children at least creates the illusion that they must do something to come to the table. And thus, even a very small way, it suggests that the table is for good people, or at least people who are doing pretty good, rather than a table of pure grace. The Lord's table is a feast for all the prodigal sons. No one deserves to be there. No one. And when we create an entrance exam for the feast, I'm afraid we're watering down the grace. Children at the table picture that grace profoundly. As we say in our church at the baptisms of our children, our infants, we say at the end of this charge, we say, even though you know nothing of this, as the, just as the apostle uh, says, we love God because he loved us first. Thanks. Thank you, Pastor Sumter. Uh, appreciate that. Um, let me get the counter going here. We'll restart the counter here for uh, Joseph. Uh, before uh, Joseph begins, let me just give a, a, a word to our listeners. Uh, if you've not listened to a debate before, you have opening statements, and these are often or usually prepared beforehand. So um, if you're listening to Joseph, who's going to be next, don't be surprised if he doesn't, and this time go back uh, word for word against what Toby has just said. These are opening statements, and then they'll have a chance to go back and forth and interact 
with uh, the arguments that were just made. So this is just a heads up regarding that. But uh, Joseph, uh, as soon as you start, the timer will uh, begin. All right. Thank you, Mr. Spurgeon and Toby. Great to hear about uh, you growing up in Rogers, Arkansas. Have to uh, interested in hearing more about that. Um, I'll get right into it. I'm aware of the time. Um, I have three reasons why I deny um, the statement as proposed. Um, one, because very young children baptized cannot examine themselves as both scripture and nature prove abundantly. Second reason is because very young baptized children do not have the faith that yields the knowledge required to examine oneself and discern the body and rightly eschew heresies. I'm not saying they don't have faith, they don't have the faith that yields that knowledge. <clears throat> and without knowledge and without the capacity to self-examine, there is no sacramental benefit to the child from partaking of the sacrament itself. Okay, so first reason, young children cannot examine themselves and, and the proofs of such. When you think of examining yourself, what does it mean? The prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Indeed, knowing one's own sin and depravity uh, is the experiential reality of every mature believer that truly knows God's grace. Job cries out, how many of mine iniquities and my sins make me to know my transgressions and my sins in Job 13 verse 23. The psalmist in the same vein exclaims, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart, Psalm 26 verse 2. And the word for examine in that psalm in the Septuagint translation is uh, dokimason. That's significant because this same verb appears here in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. The word for examine, examining oneself is dokimazeto, from the same root. Is a young child capable of the self-examination required? Knowing one's own sin and depravity, it is so deep that you must ask the Lord to reveal it to you more. And yet, how can we reasonably expect a young child to examine himself and know whether he can receive worthily? And when we look into ourselves for examination, we must have the ability to rightly judge ourselves. And um, as Paul says in this very chapter, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. A version of the same word referring to self-examination, dokimazete, uh, in, in this case appears in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, in which we're told to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, which again is beyond a toddler, a young child. So what's required in self-examination? To understand what's required in the supper, we have to go back to the Passover. And we see a consistency here throughout the whole of Scripture um, in God's covenant relations with his people, going back from ancient Israel throughout Scripture to even to the New Testament. And this brings us to Second Chronicles 30, verses 18 through 19. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than what it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon everyone that, prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord, God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. So did you catch that? It wasn't merely about the external motions of the sacrament, but rather preparing your own heart well. Preparing one's own heart was central in the old covenant, it's central in the new covenant. And it's no wonder, because in the Old Testament, you could be cut off for moral sins as well as ceremonial uncleanness. And if you didn't self-examine and you continued in your sin, you could be cut off if you were discovered, prohibited from the Passover. So before you partook, you need to be catechized. And there's a pattern we see in scripture um, in the Old Covenant and the New. You have an initiation sacrament in which you're immature, you're passive. It happens once off. You're an individual. You do it as an individual. And then you're catechized. And then you come to the confirming sacrament in which you're mature. It's active. It's communal. And it's repeated corporate. OK, so in the Old Covenant, it's circumcision. That's the initiatory sacrament. 
then you're catechized, then you can partake in the Passover. The new covenant, same with baptism, you're baptized as an infant, as myself and my opponent agree, and then you're catechized, then you'll come to the Lord's Supper. But this maturity has got to correspond with the physical maturity. And that's when we talk about um, becoming old or becoming mature. So the word for a beard in Hebrew is zakan. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. So the verb to, to become old, yazkin, okay? It's to, literally to grow a beard. For females, the growing of breasts is an equivalent sign of maturity. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, they say, you know, our little sister has no breasts. What should we do in the day in which she's spoken for? Shadim enla. Clearly, physical maturity uh, signifies mental development. So we both, both of us agree here. There is a necessary preliminary stage to taking the Lord's Supper. My opponent does not say that as soon as a baby is baptized, um, we ought to deliver the sacrament via intinction, via pouring wine into their mouth. Instead, he has a period between the baby's birth, let's say, uh, and when the baby's baptized, so say the baby is baptized after a few weeks or months, to when he can physically take the Lord's Supper. Um, I, on the other hand, would hold to a period of mental development that can still be considered as part of a physical development, wherein the child is catechized in the knowledge of the truth, learning to distinguish between good and evil, learning to practice the truth, and so on. But children cannot distinguish between good and evil naturally until they've been through this process, in which they learn and grow so that they may prepare their hearts accordingly. They need to learn doctrine. They need to move from milk to meat. And this is confirmed by Solomon when he says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it from him. It's confirmed by Isaiah, who said, um, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of her kings, both the kings. This was said of Christ. There was a time even in Christ's life where um, the maturity um, and the self-knowledge was yet to be fully developed. Again, okay? if that's true of Christ, that must be true of us um, who are far, far less than Christ. Um, Paul even says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And again elsewhere, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the sight of man and cunning craftiness, um, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. So why would Paul be commending children discerning, if by his own omission a child doesn't mind the things of man and has childish thoughts, are not the things of the Lord for the mature to discern? Coming-of-age ceremonies are common to cultures around the world in Sparta, Athens, Syria, China, Mongolia. Everywhere you look, there is a coming-of-age ceremony. Here we have quinceañeras, my sweet 16th. Atheists even have civil confirmations. So this shows that it's a natural step. And in Judaism, there's a bar mitzvah, okay? And I'm not just talking about the makeshift pragmatic religion that appeared in opposition to Christ. I'm talking about the biblical religion, um, even of Christ himself, who was 12 years old when he came to the temple um, to ask questions. That was the end of his catechesis. Um, and Christ was confirming the tradition of the Jews there. He was 12, preparing himself for the receiving of the sacrament of the Passover. So my second point, um, very young baptized children don't have the faith that yields the knowledge to require, required to examine themselves and discern the body. Um, I can hear the question arise, can't infants have faith? Yes, they can. If an elect child dies in infancy, he'll go to heaven and none can go to heaven without faith. Right. And this is true. Infants certainly do have faith. Yet it is a seed of faith. We distinguish from mature faith. Pedo communists will often claim that infants and ad adults all have the same type of faith without distinction. 
Um, I know that my opponent will probably qualify that further, but I'm speaking generally here. We still must distinguish between the seed of faith and the mature faith. Infants have a seed of faith implanted in them at regeneration, but it doesn't go forth to act until maturity. It's not a full of faith and the proof texts are insufficient. Um, David, resting upon his mother's breasts, is hope and confidence, but it's one without knowledge. It's an utter dependence on the Lord that David realizes looking back, given how easily he could have perished as an infant. Therefore, the infant trust is without knowledge. It's not full of faith. It won't yield the fruit of being able to self-examine and is a disqualifier. And if we say that infant faith has the same properties as mature faith, we're making one of the central elements of faith, which is knowledge or noticia, trivial or optional by implication. Clearly, an adult has knowledge of religion, while a child doesn't. Therefore, his faith is of a different quality, although it's of the same essence. And if we deny this, we end up mysticizing knowledge or dumbing it down to its lowest common denominator. So this is not just the learning that could be gained through rote learning, okay? You don't just learn scripture or catechesis as a nursery rhyme. Meditation must accompany, you must cogitate on what you learn. So the idea of a toddler catechism where you, you, know, you pat your head and you rub your belly um, to indicate the supposed union with Christ that one has is wholly insufficient because the toddler doing so, if we're honest, has no understanding of what he's actually doing. So. Um, with this, I think we see catechesis very clearly um, in scripture addressing that exact problem, okay? Helping the child to realize um, what's going on to learn the truth. And it shall come to pass, as it says in Exodus, when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So catechesis gives us maturity. We don't have it until we are properly catechized and we're physically mature enough to be able to reflect, be able to teach it to others. Okay. We, we don't want parrots. We don't want robots. We don't want automatons. Okay. Um, doctrinal catechesis has always been essential because the self-examination required in the Lord's Supper includes the ability to judge also um, between theological cat uh, categories and controversies to discern the body of the Lord, to know who the Lord is. If we're gonna talk about recognize, a child recognizing his sin, what is sin? If he believes in Christ, who is Christ? How is Christ related to God? Who is he? They, um, we realize this because heresies have arisen in Corinth and a party is to be commended. So it isn't wrong per se that heresies have occurred, but what's prerequisite is that the hearers have the ability to judge. They have to put a distinction between themselves and the heretical party. That's why Paul says it's good that heresies have arisen so that those among you um, can be commended. This implies a knowledge of major points of doctrine. If there are errors on creation, justification, sanctification, then how will the child know how to discern the body? So we have to narrow down on the capacity to examine oneself. It's not a fuzzy feeling or a sense of belonging. It has to do with first order matters of doctrine, okay? Um, <clears throat> In order to withdraw and recognize heresies, a child must have been catechized. They must be able to positively assert true doctrine. Okay, Discerning the Lord's body means also to understand what the bread symbolizes. We see this by comparing verse 27 with verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 11. Diacrino means to discern or to distinguish. Whosoever, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. <clears throat> verse 27. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the acrina, the Lord's body. In Acts 15, verse 9, a version of the acrina is used to describe the Lord putting a difference between Jews and Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 6, 5, it's used to describe judging controversies. 
in First Corinthians 14, verse 29, it has to do with judging prophets. You can't reasonably expect an infant to judge in this way. There's an absurdity to the expectation, an infant or toddler not having the capacity for knowledge, um, nor um, the maturity of faith to partake in the Lord's Supper worthily. And even if by some incredible effort, he can learn the whole thing wrote, he won't be able to reflect upon what it means. So without the knowledge or capacity to self-examine, um, and without the maturity of faith that yields such knowledge, there's not going to be a sacramental benefit to the child from the sac from actively partaking in the sacrament itself. And I mean by receiving the element. There'll be a benefit to observing and learning, sure, but to actually eating and drinking the body of uh, Christ as it is offered in the sacrament, no. Uh, um, so in order to understand what a sacrament is, um, I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, you have to first understand that the word of God's been preached. The sacrament brings no new thing other than what's already been preached in the word. A sacrament often follows the preaching of the word, so that the thing known by preaching and catechesis is also known by tangible and visible signs, sealing up the thing signified to the worthy receiver. Now, in the case of baptism, after the message preached, we must be born again. The sign of water illustrates and drives on this necessity. In the Lord's Supper, after the preaching that we must eat of Christ spiritually, we eat of his body, not properly and absolutely, but sacramentally. And in the words of the Westminster Confession, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation, a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. In baptism, the sacramental relationship is such that as the Holy Spirit regenerates us while we're passive, making us clean, and then having passively um, receive the washing of regeneration, the person goes forth later to close with Christ by faith. This is symbolized and sealed to true believers in baptism, although obviously not everyone who's baptized is truly regenerated. In the Lord's Supper, just as we feed on Christ through a mature faith, as we learn his doctrines and walk by faith, so we sacramentally eat the bread and wine, driving home to us that which we've already learned. Okay, That's why we do it in remembrance. So it requires an active mental cognitive ability to remember. So what happens in those cases where the thing signified, namely mature po faith, post-conversion is not present in the person receiving? What good does it do? What grace is conveyed? I don't think there is um, such. If the sacrament is conveying something that's beyond comprehension, it necessarily becomes magical or superstitious. My opponent is, I don't think he's going to say he believes in ex opere operato, operation of the sacraments. But to me, that's a necessary consequence of one thing as having the sign without comprehending the thing signified the thing signified in baptism is regeneration in which one's wholly passive but what's signified in the lord's supper is your conversion which involves your active participation i don't know if i'm out of time i'm just going to keep going um <clears throat> about a, about a minute left i started the timer when he left oh okay all right okay um <clears throat> okay so um let me just get to my conclusion hold on um so um, if, the, if we say that the Lord's Supper is given because infants have a mature faith, what is the nature of that faith? If some have faith leading to apostasy and others have a faith that's proved genuine, then both faiths are sufficient for the supper. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints is therefore harmed. If we all have the same mature faith and only some persevere. What causes it? Is it a mystery? I think we then begin to stand on shaky grounds if we start to assert such. Finally, Christ's words in John 6.53 are wholly insufficient to prove that very young children may partake in the Lord's Supper when Christ says that except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Um, it would be a gross error to suppose that eating the flesh of Christ and drinking is holy about the Lord's Supper, which hasn't yet been implemented. This is speaking of feeding on Christ 
by faith, drinking of him by faith, the thing which the, the Lord's Supper sacramentally represents. So just to recap, very young baptized children cannot examine themselves. They do not have the faith that yields the knowledge required to examine oneself and discern the body. And thus there is no sacramental benefit to the child from the sacrament itself. Okay, nice one. All right. All right, nice one. <laughs> And we lost our moderator. Uh, okay, it's just a, it's just a knuckles down, you know, fight. No, no moderator. I, w- I wonder uh, yeah. if he's tried to message us. Oh, here he comes. All right. Well, that was, uh, I'm going to pretend like, I'm going to start us back. I'm going to pretend like I was there the whole time. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Joseph. I appreciated uh, all of that every single minute of it and um <laughs> we're laughing here because i i cut out for a second but uh uh um now we're ready to move on to our rebuttal time and so this is the opportunity where they get to now interact with the arguments that were just made and uh we will again start with pastor sumter so go ahead and start and then i will start the timer whenever you begin all right uh Joseph, thanks very much. Uh, first of all, just um, appreciate the work that you've done in, in uh, preparing for this and uh, laying out your arguments uh, clearly. Um, that's very helpful in terms of interacting. So I know what I'm interacting with. Um, you, you made uh, uh, three uh, clear points. Uh, young children cannot examine themselves according to biblical standard. Uh, young uh, children cannot exercise the kind of faith um, uh, that it, um, has sufficient knowledge, um, which um, and then leads to the third point that you made, which is that young children therefore cannot receive actual sacramental benefit. Um, um, so you're nodding. I'm, I'm assuming that I've repeated that back relatively accurately. I'm going to walk back through this um, somewhat in that order, um, and um, and just um, um, and so hopefully um, hit this, and then obviously during uh, cross examination, I'm sure we can uh, tackle this some more. Um, first off, just um, the, the argument that um, I think probably a lot of what I'm going to, a lot of what I'm going to say may, may be summarized, come down to um, one simple point that kind of answers, I think, all three, which is that I don't disagree, actually, with the principles. I think where I, dis, I differ um, is on um, the degree, I think is probably what I would say. Um, and so um, I agree with you completely. Um, that there is a growing maturity of ability to examine ourselves. Um, I would say by that same token, um, as you even read um, uh, some of the, the texts that, that, you know, where, where people, uh, biblical characters cry out saying, you know, who can, who can know the heart of man? Who can examine himself? I would say, it, it, you know, there, but if we, if we take that standard, then um, there's a sense in which I would say I cannot examine myself um, the way a holy God examines me. And so you have to draw a line somewhere and say, okay, now that's enough. You know, you got enough. And I wouldn't say, um, uh, I think, um, given that, that doesn't mean there's nothing there. And that doesn't mean um, you you have nothing. You don't just throw your hands up and say, well, nobody can do this. I would say, no, we, we do have a, a duty to examine ourselves accurately, um, biblically, a growing sense of our own sinfulness, our unworthiness. Absolutely. Um, I would simply argue that I actually do believe um, that children, young children, are capable of that. Um, and I would say um, it is 
it, it's a um um and i and i would i would point um i would point to um uh the fact that um i believe that um despite the, the fact that there is growing um understanding of right and wrong and morality and so forth um i have um uh four of my own children who are now um nearly grown um but we were through the the young years but um i remember um very clearly um teaching them um at one and two years old um i i actually agree with your point that um physical maturity and mental maturity do tend to match um in 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 my um reckoning though i would say i found that as my kids began walking um that's when i that's when i saw their moral compass turn on and where they began to defy me directly and and there we have rebellion and and then also the beginnings of real guilt and remorse and sorrow and and understanding of sin that i could ask my one and a half year old about sin and disobedience and they had a growing knowledge of sin and, and an understanding of uh forgiveness and um, and most importantly, of the gospel. Um, so I would argue that, um, uh, to, to your point, the, moving to the second point, um, uh, not having faith that is actually um, has knowledge. I, I want to underline again, I actually agree with your concern that we not turn faith into um, a mystical thing um, that's irrational or has no object of knowledge. I agree with that point completely. And I would simply come back to you and say, I believe that young children really do exercise faith that has a true knowledge of the gospel, um, um, just um, uh, by way of just um, this is probably something maybe we can tackle a little bit more in, in cross examination. But um, uh, I I, um, I don't believe there is any indication. Uh, you you spend a little bit of time uh, trying to make a case that there is a rights of initiation and then rights of maturity. Um, and uh, while I again strongly agree with your point about the centrality of catechesis. I don't believe that catechesis is a prerequisite um, to the Passover um, or to any of the sacrificial meals. In Exodus 12, um, it is uh, there to prepare a lamb for the Passover meal according to the number of mouths that will be participating, um, not according to um, the, the, you know, how many people who can ask and answer the questions. Now, the asking and answering of the questions of Passover are very important. I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, but I don't believe they're prerequisites to participating. Um, likewise, I would say in the sacrificial meals, there's no indication that there was a waiting time. The peace offering in particular was one of the sacrifices in which um, the whole family was invited to participate. Um, also the feasts of booths um, uh, or tabernacles. Um, likewise, um, the, it says you and your children and, and, and those in your midst, you're to all come and eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord. Um, there's no indication that they are not um, allowed to, they're not welcome to those um, feasts. Again, I would point to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, where Paul says, all were baptized in the cloud in Moses, all ate of the spiritual food, all drank of the spiritual drink, um, and the rock that followed them was Christ. Um, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to jump over a couple of things, but um, just want to underline um, that I believe that um, infants do um, have understanding. Young children do have young uh, have understanding, um, and um, of of uh, the of the basics of the gospel, of the basics of right and wrong, um, and um, and so 
I agree with the point that it, faith ought to have true knowledge, and I believe, and I believe that that is um, what we see happening um, in young uh, children. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, the ability to discuss heresies and the gift of heresies. I'll tell you a quick story about my son. I believe he was about two and a half um, when uh, we were going through our family catechism, and I, I said um, I, I was teaching him that Jesus is God, and he said, no, Jesus is God's friend. Yeah. And he was two and a half, maybe three. And I, we had a little, you know, Aryan uh, controversy in my dining, in my dining room. And I said, no, Jesus is God. And he said, no, Jesus is God's friend. And he was very sure of that for about 10 minutes. And I walked him through some texts. And at the end of it, he said, okay, Jesus is God. As a two and a half year old, maybe three year old. Um, so I do think we can have those those discussions about heresies um, as early as those toddler years. Um, uh, and so given all of that, um, um, actually, I'll, I'll, um, I'll close with this. I mentioned this to you in a, in a um, private message as we were preparing for all this. But um, another significant part of my um, my case here would be my own personal testimony. Um, my my own father was um, in a Presbyterian church, but was studying the issue of baptism. He'd come to faith in college and was not sure about baptism and studied it for several years after I was born. Um, and it was when I was um, about four um, that my dad came to covenantal convictions for baptism. Um, we were worshiping in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, an OPC church. Um, and, um, and, but as he brought his, I was the, I'm the oldest of six, but there were three of us um, uh, um, uh, at that time. And as he was bringing the younger, my younger brothers for baptism, he said, well, Toby's a Christian. He can take the vows himself. And one of my earliest memories, and I'm really grateful for this, although I, um, I, I don't think this exact form is absolutely necessary. I am grateful for the practice of that OPC church where one of my earliest memories is being interviewed by my pastor and my elder um, uh, for baptism and communicant member status. Um, at this OPC church. And then I took those vows um, as a four-year-old and was baptized and communed at the same time. So I sort of think I get Baptist cred for that too, because it's a credo baptism, but um, but also uh, maybe a little bit of uh, pedo communion cred because um, I certainly was a young child. Um, and I look back and I remember very vividly describing um, my sin as a four-year-old, knowing that Jesus had died on the cross for my sin, and I remember beginning to take communion at that time. And, and um, I, um, I have no doubt at all um, that that sacrament was incredibly efficacious in my life as I grew up um, in, uh, in the faith. Um, and so um, I believe that um, the sacrament absolutely is capable of conferring um, true biblical grace uh, to young children who have faith uh, with real knowledge. All right. Thank you, brother. Appreciated that uh, rebuttal. And um, I was just waiting for you to say all, all, all means all. <laughs> there you go. So, um, so that's, uh, that's uh, get you ready, Joseph, for your 10 minute rebuttal. Uh, when you start, I'll start the timer. All right. Um I'll start now. Um, thank you, Toby, um, for setting that out. And I appreciate the way you're talking directly to me. I often feel in these debates, you know, everyone kind of talks past 
the person they're debating with to the audience and it gets real ugly real quick. So, you know, I appreciate that. And that's, that's good to hear. Um, so I do want to, you know, the, the time being short, I'll try to get into it. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, when you spoke about adults needing to imitate the faith of children and that we've got it the wrong way around as if we've got it, like it should be, you know, adults imitating children and instead we've got children imitating adults. So there's a verse in this same um, book to First Corinthians, which I think is super relevant here. Um, let me just find it. First Corinthians um, chapter 14, verse 20. Because uh, how should we have a faith like children? Should we have a faith you know, imitating their ignorance or their, you know, obviously not. Well, Paul says, brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children but in understanding be men. So I think the distinction here is the childlike faith should be an innocent one, a trusting one, but it shouldn't be childlike in every aspect. And that's something I've, I personally think that pedocommunism conflates. It conflates the, um, the trusting nature of a childlike faith with literally having faith like a child and therefore, and therefore extending the confirming sacrament to the initiating covenant members. Um, so I'd like to spend most of my time just going over um, what you said about you know, the totality of scripture, which I thoroughly agree with. We ought to have, we ought not just to read 1 Corinthians 11 on its own. We, we ought to consider the context. And you mentioned the behavior at the table, that's eating and drinking. Well, the context has a context. Just before 1 Corinthians 11, there's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, where it says, whatever you shall do, whether you eat, or drink and all that you do give glory unto God so okay even if we yield that the main focus is about the behavior at the table which I obviously I think some of it was I agree but I don't think it all was you you the Corinthians have just read well whatever you do you must glorify God so if they're being if they are being judged for their behavior at the table how much more are they going to be judged for things which go beyond eating and drinking and we know that from Romans 14 where it says you know the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but i think it's righteousness and joy and peace or like uh, something like that so so obviously food and drink they're not i don't think it's limited to food and drink but speaking of food and drink i like to go through a few things about the manner of the passover firstly the manner wasn't a standing sacrament we see a huge difference between the manner and the, and the lord's supper because if you're hungry on the lord's supper you're not to eat you're supposed to eat at home as as you mentioned but in the manner, this is alimentary food. This is food if you are hungry. But if you were to eat the Lord's Supper like you ate the manna, you'd come under judgment because you're doing it to, to fulfill your appetite. But that, was, that wasn't a sin with the manna to do so. So there's a debate about whether the manna is a sacrament. But even if we want to call it a sacrament, it's a very different sacrament in nature than the Lord's Supper. And that brings me to what goes in the middle, which is the Passover. The first Passover... I think was eaten in a rush to get out of Egypt. There was an urgent need for food. They didn't have time to, you know, they, they made the bread and it, they didn't have leaven. So, so it was all done quickly. But since then, it was a standing sacrament in the church. Um, and it was set up yearly um, for, um, you know, to be observed yearly to, to, to be eaten. And so I would say, I'd say this, children do have a right to the table. I agree with you. They do have a right to the, to the Lord's Supper but not qua children, not as children, but as persons in the covenant. And they have a right, just like our children have a right to drive. It's, it's conditional. The condition to be fulfilled is possession of 
the capability to self-examine. And that capacity is a consequence of the knowledge which follows catechesis and instruction. Um, <clears throat> and Toby, I think you'd also say children have a conditional right to the table because you're not practicing intinction. You're saying that the condition to be fulfilled is a physical ability to eat and drink material solid food. So that, that still ends up being conditional as much as one might not like it. Um, so um, I think that, um, you know, I mentioned earlier Second Chronicles 30, showing you need to prepare your heart for the Passover. Um, and then you have the element of the bitter herbs in the Passover. George Gillespie talks about the meaning of the bitter herbs. Well, that, that way the people of God were taught thereby the necessity of repentance and that very action. Um, so um, also we see this heart preparation in the Gospels. The disciples didn't, didn't ask the question, where will, we keep, where will thou keep the Passover in vain? Because they were keen to avoid company with the profane. They went to eat with Christ. Um, <clears throat> and when Chrysostom talks about when Christ said, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples, that's to the exclusion of the profane and the wicked and scandalous, the openly scandalous. Um, moreover, I'd say the command to observe Passover, especially once we get past you know, Exodus, once we get past the initial Passover, it's for mature males only. Even in Exodus 12, 48, it reads, And when a stranger should sojourn with him, will keep the Passover for the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that's all the males in his household, then let him come near and keep it. He shall be as one that's born in the land. So he gets his male circumcised, but only he eats. So um, why is it Yikrav, not Yikru? Why is it just one person coming? Why is it Vahayab, not Vahayub? It's in, speaking of an individual who nevertheless has brought his covenant into his household into covenant circumcision, but not to eat the Passover, only he does. Deuteronomy 16 makes this clear. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord in the place which he shall choose, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks. So it's all males. And if the Passover were for children, and it, therefore it was also for women, well, where were they at Christ's Supper? Um, we know that Jesus' disciples had wives. When Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever in Matthew 8, 14. And Paul, even in that same letter to the Corinthians, says, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife as other apostles, and as a brethren of the Lord, and Cephas as Peter? That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Well, where were the children at the Lord's Passover? Where was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene? They followed Christ everywhere. Well, they, were, they were even at the tomb, but they weren't at the Passover. Why were there only men in Jerusalem at Pentecost? It was a Feast of Weeks, a Shavuot. Um, and that was one of those three... So we've got the Feast of Weeks and the, and the Passover. They're two of the three feasts in which the Lord has commanded only males. And we see this in Acts 2. They were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout men out of every nation under he heaven, Acts 2.26. Ye men of Judea, Acts 2.14. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Acts 2.22. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, Acts 2.29. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In Acts 2.37. So... It's men, it's, it's mature men coming to Jerusalem. And that makes sense because you wouldn't be taking your children halfway across the country on, you know, on a donkey or on a camel. You know, all the way to, let's say you lived on the other side of Israel, it'll take you six days to get there, six days to get back. And then you're turning around for three weeks later, going out, coming back again. I don't believe that that's what we see. And that's why there's a command given for the males and not the females. Um, and also, I am aware I'm speaking of two slightly different things. We're talking about children and also talking about the profane. So you've got the children who are unprepared me mentally 
and the hypocrites and profane men who are unprepared morally. And when I talk to pedo communists about this, you'd say, well, you're saying that, you know, my child is, you know, a hypocrite and a sinner. And he, what's he done? He hasn't raped and murdered anyone. I'm not saying that he's unprepared morally. I'm saying that children and hypocrites each fall into a category of being unprepared and the unprepared are not to partake in, in this sacrament. So even in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul dealing with the incestuous man, the morally unprepared, um, talks about, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So there's a purging out, there's a uh, like a positive protection of the sacrament. And I believe it's from the unprepared because those who are to come into the presence, the inner sanctuary, um, in the sacrament are to be fully prepared. So I don't think, and I know you're not saying this, but I don't think the, you know, it was wholly physical. There are spiritual lessons, but the spiritual lessons we draw have implications for our children. That's not to say they're not citizens of the kingdom. I do believe if they die in infancy and they're elect, they are going to go to heaven. I believe that if you're like David's child, right? He, he died. He'd done nothing to put himself out of the covenant. So I believe he got to heaven. David believes he got to heaven. Um, so I, you know, I now the Peter communist, you know, might say, well, you know, and I think you alluded to this, maybe um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the message we're sending is one of exclusion. Well, I believe that's something we can just correct. We can just explain to them. It's, it's not yet, you know, um, mommy, you know, daddy, I want to get married. You're saying that I can't get married because I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough to marry. No, you're just not, not ready. Now it's not the right time. So um, I think there's a time for everything, as King Solomon said. And I think there is a time for the baptized child to take the Lord's Supper. It's when he's mature and catechized. All right, brother. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, we are now at our favorite time here, which is the time of uh, cross-examination. So let me explain how this will go. We will start with, uh, Toby. Will, uh, your job during this Toby is to ask questions, not to, uh, um, make a case or arguments, but simply to ask questions. And then, um, we want to, this to go as smoothly as possible with many questions as possible. So try to keep your answers, you know, relevant to the question. Don't take the question and then run off in another direction. Give, chance for Toby to get as many questions in as he can for you. And then um, you will get a chance then to do the same backwards. And then we'll go back and forth a total here of two times. So, Hello, I'm Pastor Joseph Spurgeon and welcome to Sovereign King Church. Here at Sovereign King Church, we exist to confess that Jesus Christ is King. And we're going to proclaim that Jesus Christ is King to all the world. We're going to build our lives, construct our lives on what Christ has done for us and construct our lives on the commands of our King. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, um, there's a place here for you. And it's not just a hospital for the sick, it's a place where we uh, strategize and, and we prepare to go into the battle together. So uh, there's a place for you to serve in Sovereign King Church. Well, hey, we are back, and uh, um, Toby, whenever you are ready, uh, you ask your first question, and then I'll hit the timer. 
Okay. Um, again, Joseph, thanks very much. I appreciate you very much and, uh, and the work you put into this. Um, you spent a good bit of time there in your rebuttal talking about um, how uh, the emphasis on uh, men appearing before the Lord and um, uh, the, the, from the Passover um, to the feasts all the way up to Pentecost and um, the Passover and the Gospels. So my question for you is, should women be admitted to the Lord's Supper? And if so, what text would you point to to prove that? Well, um, yes, they absolutely should be <clears throat> welcome to the Lord's Supper. Um, and what we see in the Old Covenant is women were not circumcised, yet when we go to the New Testament, we see Lydia is baptized um, and we see her household. And we now see the household requirement for the initial sacrament in the Old Covenant was not only being an infant, but it was also possession of a foreskin. And in a foreskin which can be removed. So you, you see how passive it is. Obviously, we agree. Now, in the New Covenant, the um, condition is possession of a body which can receive water, right? So girls who were excluded from directly receiving circumcision in the old covenant then receive baptism in the new covenant i'm going somewhere with this so we see why were girls excluded from the initial sacrament of the old covenant well it's to show it was imperfect okay as the book of hebrews says if if it were perfect it wouldn't need a new one so they were to see the fact that boys were receiving circumcision and they weren't and um <clears throat> they were to understand that there's something imperfect about this, I think. And we see in Exodus 12 that the requirement for joining the Passover was circumcision. Well, they couldn't join the Passover because they weren't circumcised. But now the fact that they can be baptized and the fact that we see females baptized in the New Testament, uh, this is confirmed and amplified by the Lord's Supper, um, where we see um, where therefore females can receive because they've received the initial sacrament. So the elements are the initial sacrament, catechesis, physical maturity. They've received all three. They couldn't in the old covenant because um, they weren't circumcised. All right. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep going. Um, uh, often, uh, um, part, part of the way that um, the credo communion position often argues is um, again, reading the instructions of First Corinthians 11 um, and and then saying, as, as you have said today, um, clearly young children cannot do this, so they cannot be admitted, which is um, honestly uh, very similar to the way Baptists argue about baptism. Uh, mm -hmm. The instructions in the New Testament are mm -hmm. repent and believe. And the Baptists say uh, the children, uh, you know, children can't repent and believe if they could, then we would baptize them, but they can't. Um, if you believe that the commands there to repent and believe, um, uh, you know, um, refer to adults, but not in the same way to infants, why not the instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 for examining oneself and discerning the Lord's body? Um, well, because I think as baptism replaces circumcision, we agree that circumcision is spiritual. So circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith, not only of Abraham, but also of his children. And his children were circumcised, receiving that initial sacrament, 
um, before they went forth to repent and believe. And, and, you know, you've spoken about the signs of maturity as your children start walking, you know, as they start developing. You said that maybe at an earlier age than me. So you'd say like two or three, and I'd say, well, you know, full orbed, you know, self-understanding is going to come around 10 through 13. But you'd baptize them before they have that. So I think you kind of implicitly acknowledge the same thing as me, that um, baptism, sorry, is fly? baptism is for, um, you know, before they go forth acting um, in faith and um the Lord's Supper is for afterwards. You just set that at a different time as me. So I, I, let, I, let me, I, yeah, let me rephrase the question. Maybe I didn't make it clear. So yeah. I'm asking sort of an exegetical question. Um, the command is repent and believe and then be baptized. Yeah. And as a paedobaptist, you would say, right, that's the ordinary order for an adult, but yeah. it doesn't apply in the same way to an infant. You, you would say, well, because of their status as an infant, that they come under the, the profession of faith of their parents. My question is, why, cannot, why can't we read the instructions to examine yourself and discern the Lord's body as similarly aimed at an adult? Yeah. It, it, the, 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 many of the commands in Scripture are normatively given to adults, and we naturally say there's a, there's a kind of application that we make to children. Why not do the same? Because of the analogy of faith, Romans twelve six, we're going to compare scriptures to scripture. So when you start comparing all the passages about baptism, you come up with a cumulative case that baptism is to be given um, to infants, and therefore logically it's before faith. I don't take the command, you know, repent and be baptized, as saying um, this is the order in which it's going to go for everyone. Um, whereas in the Lord's Supper. There's different qualifications. Examine yourself. Do this. Do that. You don't have those qualifications for baptism. Yes, so you do. You... Repent and believe. <laughs> repent right. and believe. Okay. Yeah. They are supposed to repent and believe, and I, I agree. But it's not saying uh, there isn't a text which say if you unworthily receive baptism, you, you know, you're gonna. Well, you are gonna eat and drink judgment. You are gonna have condemnation. Yes. Fair point. But what I'm saying is baptism replaces circumcision, as you see in Colossians 2. And so it's the same thing as in the Old Covenant. Why did they, you know, why did they circumcise before they repent? Um, it's just the same. To me, it's the same thing. One replaces the other. One's an initiation sacrament. One's a confirming sacrament. So logically, if you have a child, well, he needs to go through the process of catechesis to get from A to B, from baptism, from, ah, from circumcision to Passover. And the same from uh, baptism to the Lord's Supper. So I, I just see the continuity there. And I don't you have any other comments. Yeah. One and a half minutes left, but just really quickly, can you point to uh, a passage that actually indicates that there was, um, that there is a, pro that, that catechesis is a prerequisite for participating in Passover or the, or the feasts? Sure. Exodus uh, 12, where, you know, what mean ye by this service? But does um, it say you have to ask that before you eat? Well, it's what mean ye, like y'all. So they're not, they're saying it to their observers. Um, so. But there's no verse yeah. that says you have to teach them first and then they can eat. Well, it's, again, it's by, you know, good and necessary consequence. You know, there's no verse which says baptize an infant. You, you put the scriptures together. And I believe this is, you know, the case you build as I, as I try to do. Yeah. In First Corinthians, or sorry, in in First uh, Corinthians ten, though it says they all ate spiritual food and drink, right? Right. 
So even the infant, even the young children, not the ate, ate spiritual food and drink. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And then since the manna, the Lord's put in place certain... Sorry, did I interrupt your question? I, I want to give you a chance. I guess I'm just saying it, there's not a, there wasn't a prerequisite for them to eat the manna. And Paul says that those things were written down uh, for us so that we would not sin like them. There's no, but there's no indication of a... Uh, where I'm just looking for an indication of a prerequisite. But my time is out, so yeah. you don't have to answer me. <laughs> you got another window, so first thing we do, okay? I'll but, and you might have to answer it again. Uh, but, um, okay, yes, uh, let's come back to that. And yeah. even if we run out of time on one of these, I want to I want to get an answer for that. I think that's a that's an important thing. So as a moderator, I'm going to give us that time. But that's a uh, um, let's go ahead and do the next question session. We'll start with you, Joseph. When you've finished asking the first question, that's when I'll start the timer. Um. Taking the time to think. Um, if a toddler repeats, um, you know, a toddler catechism, does he therefore, un is that evidence that he's understood what he's repeated? Uh, I would say that um, as a toddler uh, begins to answer questions, he is beginning to understand what he's saying. Yes. Okay. Um, could he explain it? to a younger sister or an older sister? Um, I think uh, very simply, yes. Okay. Um, do you think he could go away and reflect upon um, the questions you ask? Or do you think, do you think that after you ask a toddler, we're just starting to catechize our toddler. So this is interesting for me and, and yeah. you, you're about parenting. So I'm kind of, but do you think that, um, you know, a toddler goes away and reflects on it? He, he reflects on his sin. He, he thinks about, you know, the, the, the nature of Christ and God. Like how far do you think that goes, you know, based on what, what the words you teach him? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think um, the, I would say two things. There's the biblical um, narrative itself. And so I think, um, Paul says to Timothy that he learned the scriptures from a young, from a young age, um, and um, I also think that um, uh, um, in Psalm eight it says that God uses the the cries of infants to silence um, our enemies and avengers, um, and and so. But then add to that my own personal experience. I would say yes. I I I don't think. Um, if you're looking for it to look like the way it looks like for a 15-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old, I don't think that it does. But honestly, I would also say I'm not sure um, the way maybe you and I, who are theology nerds, yeah. I, I, if you don't mind. You see mine. You know, I'm not sure most of the people in my church go away and meditate and reflect on the things on these things the way you and I might, or you know, as as a minister of the gospel, the way I'm laboring to have them meditate on these things. Yeah. Um, but I would say yes. Um, I um, and I my the signs of that would be um, signs of um, uh, sometimes you know a lot of our early catechism is in song. We teach. Our, our, our kids um, catechism songs or hymns or short uh, scripture songs. And I will find my kids. I, I used to find them when they were little, um, you know, off playing with toys, 
singing the hymn that they learned. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and I would see them um, sometimes even talking about some of these things. Um, uh, uh, yes. Okay. So um, I'm trying not to debate. I'm trying to ask a question, but you just said something really interesting. You said that like, um, you know, often, you know, people in the children will have a similar reaction to say people in church who also won't necessarily go home and meditate on it. But do you think that would be a valid thing to say if if they're not meditating on these things and if they're not self-examining? I don't mean, um, you know, uh, for writing PhDs, but do you think that that actually might be something which might reasonably exclude an adult from um, participating in the Lord's Supper? Uh, I, I would say um, the um, a, a high-handed, hard-hearted refusal to meditate on th- on these things, uh, yes. But I think that would ordinarily come out in um, actions. Uh, you, you will know them by their fruits. And then what I would say is what you, you know the the process by which you exclude someone, you bar them from the table, is you excommunicate someone. That's you know, that's how you bar someone. And so that takes a process of walking alongside them, the Matthew 18, et cetera. Um, so, but I would say, so, but I would say yes, in principle, yes. Um, but I, but I think that um, that is, that takes a, a pastoral care um, to try to understand is, was this person, you know, having a bad week or um, are they really in high handed rebellion and hard hearted against God? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Hypothetical for you. Um, I'm going to use a personal example, but it's not meant personally. If your three-year-old son, let's go back a bit, takes communion and my three-year-old son doesn't, does your son have an advantage over my son? And I won't be offended. I'm just <laughs> interested. Um, yes. Okay. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, and I don't, and don't, certainly don't intend any um, um, uh, offense. And, um, and I'll say, I, I can add to this, my own personal testimony, I started taking communion at four, as I mentioned, um, uh, the rest of my siblings, I believe were all more like nine, 10, 11, uh, mm. which is, is definitely more sort of traditional in, in the Orthodox Presbyterian church, which I grew up in. Um, and, um, and I think God was kind to them and, and, and so forth. But yes, I do believe that a young child who is also welcome to the table, um, is, um, uh, being afforded an additional means of grace um, uh, that is a great blessing to young children. Should um, a naughty child who keeps repeating the same naughtiness um, be excluded from the supper? I believe that the um, keys of the kingdom belong to the elders of the church. Um, and so um, what I would tell a parent who has a, a very naughty, and I, I like that word, that's a good word, naughty, um, uh, child that they ought to, br- they ought to, if they have those kinds of significant concerns, they ought to bring their child to the elders, at, uh, to, um, consider. And depending on the situation, um, sometimes in our church, not all churches do this, but we do practice temporary suspensions, um, from the table, uh, on occasion, uh, for high handedness and hard heartedness. Um, and so, um, that, um, that, but I would say that question ought to be brought to the elders and the elders ought to um, examine the particulars of the situation to determine if that's called for or not. Okay. Do you it's think, on the table. okay, that's fine. Thank you. Pun do intended. You, no, right. Um, do you think the child who's been through the temporary suspension, um, is going to understand, um, 
the significance of what's happened because obviously if he carries on in unbelief, he carries on, you know, would would you bring that to excommunication or do you have like a different way of doing this with young children or yeah. 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 Well, I would say in the ordinary course of things, God's um, made the frame of young children to be um, usually highly malleable. Um, so there's a number of tools uh, in a parent's toolbox. Um, and so in the same way that I would say back to the uh, question about the adult who seems to not be examining themselves in a good way. Um, I have uh, in some ways a little bit less tools. I mean, I can do a lot of talking with adults, but I have less tools with a young child. Um, God's made them um, so that they're um, far, far more impressionable in certain respects. And, um, you know, there's negative discipline, corporal punishment, uh, spanking. Um, there's positive reinforcement, encouragement, teaching. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes little kids, you know, need naps. They need food. They need their diaper changed. They need, you know, more time with dad. Um, they need, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things, though, that can be a part of that picture. So I would say, Ordinarily, I think for probably most of the elementary years, there's quite a bit of um, good work you can do. That, I, in my experience, I've never seen a situation where it's a complete brick wall and nothing changes. Okay. All right. Well, we are back to Toby. You get your eight minutes again, and. Um... We, we kind of left off that last question. I don't know if you want to start there, but I do want to get that in at some point. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start my, there. Yeah. yeah. So right. um, the, yeah. the question I was wanting to ask is, um, Joseph, was um, um, where do you go to prove a prerequisite for participating um, in the Old Testament feasts, um, Passover, whatever? Uh, again, it's not enough to show that um, there was catechism, catechism happening. We agree that there was catechism happening and that that's very important. My question is, is where would you go to demonstrate that that's a prerequisite? And you said we should interpret scripture in light of scripture, granted. And one of the scriptures I'd point to is 1 Corinthians 10 that says all of Israel was baptized. All of Israel participated in the, in, in ate spiritual food and spiritual drink. Um, that, that there, Paul is making a very, just sort of, this is what happens to covenant people hmm. and, and does not intimate any kind of prerequisite. And then says, these things are written down as examples for us that we might not sin like them and, and worship idols like they did. So my question is, is where, and, um, where else can you go? Where can you go to demonstrate, um, that, uh, or, or even, even a, by clear and necessary consequence, as you, as you said, that there is a prerequisite to coming to the uh, feast of Israel or the Lord's Supper, for that matter. Sure. Um, I believe I mentioned it earlier, but um, Second Chronicles um, 30, when Hezekiah prays for the people, he says, The good Lord, pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. Here we see... Uh, quite a clear um, commendation from Hezekiah. The blessing is for those who prepare their hearts um, to seek God. And therefore there was a whole system. Okay. In the manner, yeah, everyone partook. But then since then there was a whole system uh, set up to exclude the ceremonially unclean, <clears throat> also the morally unclean. There was a cutting off of the people by the rulers of the synagogue. Israel didn't just have, you know, its magistrates. It also had its church officers who would practice um, sanctions. And you see this way back in the Abrahamic covenant. If you didn't 
circumcise your children, you were to be cut off. That cutting off wasn't a shortening of your life. It wasn't you would be put to death by the magistrate. If you were cut off um, from the covenants, we already see like an exclusion um, from the Passover. Now, if you come into that um, as an uncatechized child, you're automatically starting off at a point where you don't have the knowledge required to prepare your heart. You can't fulfill the commandment. You can't get the blessing that Hezekiah is talking about. You haven't prepared your heart. So the idea is that the catechesis is a grace, a necessary you know, prerequisite, because otherwise, how would you be able to prepare your heart? And again, I go back to the question, what meaning by the service? The children are observers. And also the command in Deuteronomy 16 for the males to go up. It's the males who are going up every year. Um, and they're males you know, of an age. It's, it says in the next verse, it says men. It, this is referring to mature men. So I put all that together and say, hey, here is here's the, the clarity of it. Yeah. Um, is, um, so... Uh, apart from uh, um, the Chronicles text, where they're yeah. um, there, and, and again, I, and I, I would sort of um, know where else to start argue, but um, sure. the, the uh, um, I'm just to form this as a question. Um, but it, um, it, it seems to me that um, contextually, you're in the context mm. of a Reformation, mm. and in that Reformation, it makes sense then to tell um, the people that have been in sin, this is how we're going to uh, restore our faithfulness to God. And there needs to be, you know, this is a reformational act. Yeah. And again, that seems to me to be very um, parallel to, um, uh, you know, everyone's getting cut to the heart saying, what should we do at Pentecost and Peter preaching, repent and believe um, and be baptized. Um, when the, when the message goes to uh, adults who have been in sin or been in rebellion, there is an action of preparing um, and repenting and believing. And my question, I guess, is why? Um, that it, um, how do you get a prerequisite for children out of um, that? If um, if again for baptism, um, it doesn't apply to them. Um, and why do you, how do you suddenly get a prerequisite when it comes to um, uh, uh, the meals when all the all the children ate um, the man in the wilderness? Because um, okay, first you said it's a time of reformation, and I agree. But every time in Israel's history was supposed to be a time of reformation. Leviticus twenty six verse twenty three: If you will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary to unto me, verse twenty four, then I, will I also walk contrary unto you? And will punish you seven times for your sins. So there's an ongoing need for reformation. I wouldn't limit the text in Second Chronicles to say this was a peculiar time. This was always the thing required. But we can see it easily from the scriptural examples, as I, you know, as I pointed out, you know, where are the women and children in Christ's Passover? Yet we see little children circumcised. We see households baptized. Yet we don't see. Um, like you know where are they i i think the the biblical examples we get to go inside the i'm parcel. the one that gets to ask the questions yeah. here <laughs> but, um, but 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 i will say that yeah. the women and the women and children are at the feast of tabernacles um because they're instructed to, to feast you there with your family same thing with the um the um the, the peace offering the families are there you and your families rejoice before the lord um Feast of Tabernacles and uh, peace offerings. So at least in some of the feasts, 
there are explicitly families involved, children involved. Um, um, that's a freebie because that, that's that's my question and your question. <laughs> <laughs> you on that okay sure they can eat at the feast but what we're talking about is the eating of the sacrificial lamb okay so let's okay let's say um there's a love feast at the church right the child can eat at the love feast i'm talking the new testament church they can eat at the love feast that doesn't mean they're therefore going to partake in the lord's supper and yeah. that, that's a that's a that's a distinction i make yeah sure they'd eat but yeah. what are they eating they're eating the unleavened bread why, why when they selected the lamb were they required to select it for how many mouths we're going to eat because that's true that's how many in every household you had a certain number of males who were going oh, to no, eat mouths mouths yeah of worthy people who'd be able to eat now let, let me let me answer this one because you're yeah um <clears throat> they've come out of egypt right some people will say okay there's a household therefore you know the number of mouths if it was only the adult males they'd only be like one or two well no they'd be coming out with you know extended families look at jacob coming down to egypt yeah. he had a huge family with him so there were several males in there they're the mouths you know that it refers to okay yeah you can say what well, it says all the mouths well it says in numbers you know all the congregation of israel in numbers one and then it's qualified it is qualified by the fact they got to be 20 years or over when in exodus 12 it's qualified by the fact they have to be um you yeah, know, they got to be mature. They got to right. be. Okay, so Thank you. Know. Thank you. Um, different question um, for the last bit here. Um, uh, one of um, uh, one of the arguments, um, of course, as uh, Reformed uh, biblical theolo- um, uh, Christians, we believe that Scripture is our ultimate authority. Um, but it is also helpful to see the practice of the church throughout the centuries. Um, one of the things that infant baptism, uh, Baptist um, uh, 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 folks argue from is the uh, testimony of the histor- historical historical church. Um, the inclusion of young children in um, in the covenant would have been a dramatic uh, revolution if they were suddenly excluded from the new covenant. We argue with Baptists, where's where's the uh, revolution? Where's the big controversy of not including the children? It's not there. That's because the children were included. Um, I know that you differ on um, uh, you're questioning whether they were included in the feasts or not, but yeah. it is a f- historical fact that from about the third century on until about the 11th or 12th century, there's pretty <laughs> massive evidence um, that children took communion. Um, um, why um, would you accept um, the uh, testimony of the church on baptism um, and not on communion? Because I don't think it's there. I don't think there's all this loads of evidence at all in church history. I believe that the quotes are taken out of context. I'd like you to tell me, um, as this goes into my question time, um, what evidence you have from church history um, that children were communed. That'll be my first question back. All right. Let me re- let me restart my. Uh... Hey, you turned it around on you. Let me restart yeah. my counter here, and and we will let you. Uh... Uh, ask that question again, then I'll hit the play button on the counter. Okay, what evidence do you have of um, pedo communion uh, throughout church history? Yeah, um, we could start with um, Augustine. Um, uh, Augustine um, uh, uh, says um, that, um, here's a quote, um, they are infants, but they receive his sacraments. They're infants, but they share in his table in order to have life in themselves. Uh, uh, later on, um, why is this 
Uh, why is the blood, which is of the likeness of sinful flesh, which was shed for the remission of sins, why is it ministered to little one that, that he may drink, that he may have life, unless he hath come to death by a beginning of sin on the part of some? So he's in the process of arguing about original sin and is arguing, um, asking um, and arguing from the practice of pedo communion and saying one of the reasons why they're admitted to the table, um, and we may quibble with some of a way that Augustine would think of the efficacy of the sacraments, but nevertheless, um, uh, he's at least um, re referencing um, uh, the uh, participation of infants, young children, um, in the table. Uh, do you want me to keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, um, so, um, uh, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, Leo the Great um, is uh, another. Um, uh, it, he's a little bit later uh, than uh, Augustine. Um, um, he says, um, uh, um, those who can remember that they used to go to church with their parents can remember whether they received what used to be given to their parents. Um, he goes on um, to, to say maybe they've forgotten, but um, many of them would remember that they took communion with their uh, parents. Um, uh, the, um, the, there are, um, I believe, uh, uh, I believe that Cyprian um, was another who references um, uh, uh, Pedo communion. Um, uh, and um, okay, can I ask Cyprian? Yes. Right. What he's describing is a force feeding of a young girl during a time of declension in the church. He's observing a deacon shoving the host down a little girl's throat. Now, he do you do you take Cyprian's words to be affirming the practice of pedo communion, or do you take it to be you know lamenting the state of the church? Uh, well, I think it's it's perhaps are um, open to um, uh, uh, different interpretations, but I, I I guess I would turn back and again I know this is your question, but I um, I would say. What? I think Augustine's quotes are clearer, but I think I think Cyprian is at least um, potentially. Um, uh, 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 I think it can be taken in a couple of different ways. When he says this much about an infant, which was not yet of an age to speak of the crime committed by others in respect of herself, does that sound positive to you or negative? Well, I think it um, it depends on what um, he's referring to. Oh. I I don't have time to read the whole thing. Well, well okay. Um, let's let's go on. Okay. Why do you think, because this is something I hear from Peter Communion, why do you think some will say that the practice of Peter Communion was stopped because they were scared of spilling the, the host? Do you hold to that position? I think it was a contributing factor, yes. Okay. What why? I don't like, think what, it was the I don't think it was the key one, but I think it was a contributing factor. Okay, what's the evidence for this claim? Well, because um, no one was taking communion. Okay, so okay, so in Aquinas, remember, remember that um, by the uh, by the uh, uh, was it the I can't remember which council it was 1200, 1400, They actually had to pass a uh, you know papal um, mandate that you had to take communion at least once a year. Yeah, and and um, and um, there was um, uh, the reason was is because of superstition. Um, because there was concern of profaning the, the body and blood of the Lord. Of course, th at this point, they're only taking the body. They're not taking, they're only taking into one kind, not the cup. Um, 
but that was, a, 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 and related, of course, was a massive misunderstanding of salvation. And so they thought that um, if they did, you know, once they took the, the, you know, communion, either they might screw it up. But on the other hand, if they took it, they sort of had this, you know, they were zapped of all their sins. And, um, and they didn't, um, they, they were afraid of that. But is this any more than supposition? Because what I've read doesn't on, on this doesn't seem to quote anything. Some of some of the people also were claiming it was done for hygienic reasons. When I read Aquinas, he just says the the Greeks practice pedocommunion because they misread Dionysus. Um, what, what, why do you think the Greeks started practicing pedocommunion? Well, I think the whole church practiced pedocommunion um, from the beginning with the apostles, um, uh, because I think that all the children were welcome to the covenant meal, um, just like they had been in the Old Testament. And, and so I think it was natural for them to all be taking it. I think there would have been a massive controversy. I'd make the same argument that we would make about infant baptism. If yeah. children had been excluded from the Lord's Supper, I think we would have heard about it. Um, <laughs> but they weren't because they were, um, they were welcome. I believe it was the normal practice for all the children to be baptized and welcome to the table in, the, in both East and West. But what happened was in the West, um, the doctrine of bishops developed. Um, and, it, and, it, um, and particularly the rite of confirmation or the sacrament of confirmation. And the, and the theology was, since they believed that the bishops were the direct, it was a misunderstanding of what happened in Acts, but they believed that since the bishops were the direct um, physical descendants and had the charisma that the apostles had, that only the bishops could confer the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, um, but in the East, while um, there was um, similar, um, some confusions as well, um, they allowed for the local pastors um, to practice confirmation, which they continued to do at baptism, which is still done to this day in the Eastern Church. Okay, I'm just going to switch tack for a little bit, quick fire. Um, do you believe that um, there's the, the, the food in the covenants has always been sacramental? Do you believe the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Do you think they were sacramental? I, I, believe, the, um, I believe that they were, yes. Okay. Do you think Adam was right if he went to eat from the tree of life? Was that fine? Yes. Okay. Was it right to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Uh, not yet. Okay. What if he did? So when he ate the apple from the wrong tree, could he have said to the Lord, well, I'm being consistent because if I can eat from the one, I can eat from the other. Would that have been a fair argument? No. Okay. That's what I believe is happening, you know, with the accusation that we're copying Baptist theology. Yeah. The, the two sacraments are different. I'm making a distinction between them. Um, I'm not saying you're not. I'm just, that's kind of rhetorically where I go because I feel the Baptist thing is feels that, you know, it's a little rhetorical, but, that, but it's totally valid if that's what you think, that's fine. But I'm just, all I'm trying to show with this is, it's gone, yeah. you want to, it's your time to speak. But, um, okay, let's let's go ahead to a different question. Um, <clears throat> okay, if a party in the church begins spouting heresies, ought they to be excluded from or included in the Lord's Supper? Um, uh, um, uh, with the use of appropriate pastoral care and due process, they should be excluded. Okay. Um, no further questions for this time. All right. Wow, that got a little fiery there. I liked it. Uh, um, good job. So we are now at our final uh, statements, and this is where Joseph will go first, and we will give Toby, who is in the affirmative, the 
chance to go last to make the case at the end. So, uh, Joseph, you will have seven minutes, and um, I will begin the timer when you start. Okay. Um, I'm just going to carry on. Uh, from... oh, sorry. Hang, on, hang on one second. I'm so sorry. Let me uh, let me give this uh, caveat, this theme um, here. In these concluding arguments, just as in a court case, they do they usually are not allowed to introduce new evidence in in the final statements. They're trying to wrap up and 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 it's not to say that you can't introduce something to help with the argument, but don't introduce, if, if you will, some brand new argument that has not been a chance to been gone through with the other people. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Sorry. All right. You can call a foul if I do. Okay. Yeah, same, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 you seconds know. is clock. Take 30 seconds from my end. <laughs> we'll put um, you in a penalty box. All right, ready? <laughs> Begin. Okay. The question set before you today is whether as soon as a child can chew food, they're capable of examining themselves or they enter into the stage in which self-examination ordinarily begins. And to me, this, um, ha this conflates one basic element of physical development with mental self-awareness that just is not present with toddlers. Toddler communion, which is what this is, suggests that what a toddler repeats, he necessarily understands in some sense. This to me is to reduce the gospel to rote learning. I'm not saying in intent from Toby. I just think it's the effect of it. Um, when Paul says, I will pray with the spirit, he says, I will pray with the understanding also. And I think this needs to be applied to our sacramentology also. Paul explicitly tells the Corinthians, be not children in understanding, how be it in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. And that's in 1 Corinthians 14, 20. A childlike faith is childlike in its innocence, not in its lack of comprehension. I believe I've proven that very young baptized children cannot examine themselves as both scripture and nature prove. Um, I've also argued that young baptized children don't have the faith that yields the knowledge required for self-examination. And without that capacity, there isn't a sacramental benefit to the child from the sacrament itself. Um, let it not be said that I hold to, um, <clears throat> uh, let it, uh, okay, so I understand that there are conditions for baptized covenant children, okay? But let it not be said that we disagree on this. We both do. But for me, it's mental self-awareness to self-examine maturity going with it, the fruit of maturity, where it's from my opponent, it's basically you know, having teeth and being able to, yeah, it, it's more like basic maturity than what I'd call full developed maturity. This is supposedly based on continuity with the Passover. Yet, as I've demonstrated, the Passover cannot be said to include infants or even toddlers or young children eating sacramental lamb. By asking what meaning by the service a young child is excluded from the sacrament, he must first undergo catechesis. We see Christ himself undergoing catechesis at Passover in Jerusalem, age 12, in preparation for taking the Passover, age 13. Deuteronomy 16, 16 clearly states, the males must appear before the Lord, and indeed that's what we find at Christ's Passover. We see no women or children there, despite Peter having a wife and other apostles too. Um, the Passover was all about sin, the, from the leaven that must be purged out to Egypt, symbolically representing the sin you fled, you know. Rome in Revelation is, is Sodom and Egypt, um, the city in which our Lord was crucified um, under the, its authority. To the bitter herbs reminding you of the taste of sin, to the moral exclusion of the ungodly men of Passover, every element of, of it shows the holiness of the sacrament. Okay, um, so um, why would we expect any change from the Lord's Supper? Self-examination means a judgment. If we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. Yet we're asking toddlers to partake in the sacrament 
before they can judge themselves, which is a prerequisite. So yes, behavior at the table matters. We shouldn't be drunk or overeat at a love feast. Yet the Lord's Supper is not a love feast where one can overeat. It's a small portion of bread. This cannot be the narrow meaning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we're to glorify God in what we eat, drink, and all that we do. So not merely in food and drink, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, Romans 14 and 17. If the sin at the table is excluding others, then why must there be heresies mentioned in the same chapter? What are you to do with heresies if you can't exclude heretics? Although I do appreciate my opponent said they will. I believe it's, um, you can't then say that the major sin was excluding people because excluding people is commended in the same chapter. So how will you stop immorality spreading if you don't fence the table? If you practice in excommunication, then you do de facto fence the table. But the command isn't only to negative to expel the heretical or immoral, but positively, positively to welcome only those who can self-examine. And not only to do so, but to judge them according to their knowledge of faith. Faith has standard elements, knowledge, assent and trust. And when knowledge isn't present in its maturity, we oughtn't be affirming children to take a sacrament wherein knowledge is required. Because if we start communing them, then once they're naughty and in a pattern of repeated behavior, we have to excommunicate them. To excommunicate someone is basically to put them out of the church. Then they're in a worse position than what they started with. This could all have been avoided if we'd catechized them and taken the time to let them get to maturity before they made that covenant promise before the Lord in their own persons, not as a general, not as a general declaration from their parents but a particular one from themselves so we are not telling their children but when we exclude them from the park from the lord's supper when we say you can't participate yet we're not they're not excommunicated any more than the israelites of old were when they catechize their children rather than feeding them the passover lamb we're not telling them their catechesis earns regeneration we're saying that they must press on for the knowledge of christ and if they are the lords they will want to examine themselves we're often accused of morbid introspection on the credo communion side. It isn't morbid introspection so much as mortifying introspection. They put sit, we put sin to death because we've died to sin. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the spirit, you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Romans 8, 13. It doesn't mean we're trying to create a regenerate church. Nothing of the sort. We do want to make sure that we don't have children who eat and drink judgment to themselves in disobedience to the Lord's commands. Okay. I, I don't doubt um, the love um, for children that we all have. But we as credo communists, we love them too. That's why we want them to, to wait and um, <clears throat> not stir up um, this before before it awakens, so to speak. So we don't have children who take the benefits of the sacraments without the warnings and then suddenly have warnings fall upon their head once they reach an arbitrary age of, what, 20? Um, the, the, the position of my opponent doesn't even solve the problem of the fact that at some point the warning passages intended for adults therefore have to kick in for those covenant children and therefore they too end up with an age of accountability the very thing which they're trying to say that they go against they end up having in order for when the warnings kick in and finally just to um just to reassert um on um you know peter communion i believe i i don't i believe cyprian was force feeding um it was describing a force feeding he wasn't force feeding he was describing a force feeding that augustine has quotes going both ways and you know as tosinus says he's often contradicting himself we know this from reading augustine every time you try and find something systematized he contradicts himself and there's plenty of him saying that you know one must examine themselves before they take the supper we find that in justin martyr um and in other early church figures um but we'll also find um the greeks started communing their children not because of not because they're avoiding superstition because dionysus said that a baptized person must be led up the aisle the man, his hand must be held and he must be brought to then receive the communion, which is clearly talking about a man because an infant cannot walk. And yet the Greeks practice um, 
infant communion. So I'd say that the historical case has not been well made either by Kaido or Tommy Lee um, or any other sermons preached on it. It's based on a lot of speculation as well, more so than evidence. The evidence we do see, including in the later Reformation, is wholly against it. Even Musculus um, didn't assert that we should practice pure communion. He just didn't go against it. The end. All right, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, now, Toby, you will have a chance to give your final statement here. Seven minutes. When you start, I will uh, begin the timer. All right. Uh, once more, I want to thank you, Joseph. Thank you for your work. Um, thank you for your care and um, love of the truth and uh, and your love for God's people. Um, and uh, Pastor Lord Spurgeon, thank you for hosting this. Um, You're welcome. I want to return uh, to where I began, um, and and simply um, again uh, one of the one of the key um, rules of interpretation is that um, we want the clearer passages to interpret the less clear. Uh, we want the, um, the the most clear uh, teachings and text to interpret um, the more obscure. Um, and I want to argue that I think um, Jesus's own words regarding children and the kingdom should be at the center. They are the clear texts. Jesus says, let the little children come, for of such is the kingdom of God. Um, when asked who is the greatest in the kingdom, he says, bring me this little child. This is the greatest in the kingdom. Unless you become converted uh, like this little child, um, you can't enter the kingdom. Uh, again, um, I, I, I don't know how we can say that. I don't know how we can affirm um, our children's full membership in the covenant and then not welcome them to the covenant meal. Um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we are one uh, body because we participate and we partake of one loaf. Um, so our, our, our membership in the body is expressed uh, in our participation uh, in the sacrament, and I uh, and and while I I I know um, my opponent um, uh, as as um, clearly expressed that he um, intends um, no um, degradation to covenant children's um, uh, position in the covenant, I I I believe that objectively uh, it is. Um, uh, it, 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 while and and while I appreciate and I've been in churches where we've we've practiced exactly what he's talking about, where we affer, we assure uh, young children they are members of the covenant. Um, I believe that we are saying something kind of loudly um, about that status um, every time that bread goes by them, every time that wine uh, goes uh, by them. They are they are full members of the covenant. They are um, according to Jesus. Um, uh, the greatest uh, members of the kingdom, and um, as such, should be welcome um, to his uh, table. I also want to affirm um, uh, some of the concerns that Joseph raised. Um, I think he is absolutely right that the warnings that go with the sacrament um, have to kick in right away. Um, and so, any pedo communionists who are blithe or casual about that, I think that's um, not. Uh, honest or faithful to the text. And so I want to agree with that completely. Church discipline has to apply uh, if we're going to admit uh, young children to the table. As I said earlier, I do believe that in the ordinary course of things, there are a lot of tools at our disposal, which means we don't have to run straight to a Matthew 18 uh, process with most three-year-olds. Um, but I think yeah, he's absolutely right that the warnings apply. 
And that means that we absolutely, as we defend this practice, that it, that should not make us less um, intense in our catechesis. It should make us more intense in our catechesis. Um, uh, and be, because they're full members, that's how um, this covenant nurture happens. It's not superstitious. It's not mystical. It's not magical. Um, it certainly is by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that works as God told Abraham uh, through instruction, uh, through instructing our children uh, in these things. Um, uh, Joseph mentioned uh, the text in his closing on um, uh, praying with understanding and um, and said, you know, how much more so ought we to insist on understanding with our children? I'm quite sure that my opponent teaches his children to pray. And so my question, you know, it, it would be um, how, um, you know, aren't you concerned about that, that they're not praying with understanding? Are they just repeating words? Um, and if they're just repeating words, you know, um, you know, you know what Jesus said about um, prayers that are just repeating words. You, you think you're going to be heard because of your many words. Um, and I would say, you know what, I don't think your children are just repeating words. I think um, they are learning to pray as you teach them to pray. And I would say the exact same thing. Um, if they can have understanding to pray, then they absolutely can have understanding to see the Lord's death for them, to see forgiveness of sins for them. Uh, and, and so I, I want to affirm your point that uh, faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. And I believe that young children um, um, are fully capable of that. I also want to just note, um, as you mentioned a number of times, the the male uh, representatives at the at the feasts and in so many of these other texts. And I I, I say sure, absolutely, um, but I don't think that was to the exclusion of women and children. I believe that those men represented adequately represented their families, and so their families were welcome. They were not required to be there. As you noted, there were geographical distances and so forth. But I believe that the covenant representation was sufficient, though not ideal. Um, and so the, the women that the, the male headship um, pattern that you're describing, I, I actually think includes the children, includes the women that, that God is, uh, as Job sacrificed on behalf of his, his, his children who may have sinned um, as um, uh, we we are, are re representatives of our families. I also want to just um, reaffirm uh, that I also agree with you that um, there ought to be a mortification of sin at the table, though I do believe that the dominant tone ought to be joy and festivity and grace. Um, I also do believe um, that um, God is dealing with us at the table, and that is a, a, a necessary uh, part of the table. Um, I want to close by just simply saying we're either welcoming our children and teaching them to believe, or else we are in some way communicating some doubt about their faith. Jesus warns us not to put any cause of stumbling in front of our little ones who believe. Jesus says they believe. So we are also required to discern the body of Christ, not only in remembering the death of Jesus for our sins, but also in those for whom Christ died. And when we receive the littlest members of that body, we receive Christ himself. And so when very young baptized children of believers become capable of participating in common family meal, they are capable of examining themselves and discerning the Lord's body and thus should be welcomed to the Lord's Supper. All right. Well, brothers, uh, that concludes the time on our debate, I am sure.
that there would be more questions and, and more that you could go <laughs> for even more on some of that, getting into history and other things. But you both have done well. Um, you have debated in, I think, a, a good manner, attempting to arrive at the truth and uh, in an honest uh, uh, manner. And so I appreciate your time. I appreciate the hard work that you guys both put into it. And now I know our listeners have to go and study the Word of God and um, believe the Word of God and, and obey it. Wow, what a compelling debate. But as always, it seems to merely graze the surface, and I'm certain there's more to be articulated from both sides. You know, I appreciate the contributions of both Pastor Toby and Joseph Wiseman, and I think they both endeavored to argue with a spirit of sincerity and integrity, and I thought it went well. Now, here's my encouragement for you, the listener, when you engage in this debate, or actually with any debate that you you watch. And so here's my encouragement. Revisit the debate. Ensure that you listen not just for style, but substance. You know, different people that participate are going to have different styles. Some are going to appeal to you more than others. But avoid being swayed solely by personalities. But rather, weigh the truths of the arguments. Familiarize yourself with logical fallacies and see if anyone has carried any of those out. Then, I would encourage you, delve into the Reformed confessions, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, catechisms. Uh, Look at the writings of the faithful departed saints, those who fought the battle well, and they've already finished the race, and they didn't make a shipwreck of it. Uh, there's a whole lots of modern books and not to say you shouldn't read modern books, but, uh, the, the debate is still out upon them, right? They, uh, if people are still alive, they haven't finished the course. And so it's always good to look at men who have finished the course, who have perspective that we don't have in our day and they can help point out our sins. And so read faithful departed saints like John Calvin, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards and others. And then heed the guidance of your pastors and elders. Right? Don't don't just go rushing out without the people that God has given you in uh, the battles of life. God established his church um, and he gave his church the keys of the kingdom. And he gave those keys in particular to first the apostles and then to those who are their fellow elders, as the apostle Peter says, and first Peter. And so God established pastors and elders to equip you for the work of the ministry. And you would be a fool to just rush out and to be developing different theologies and things without talking through things with your pastors, your elders, those who God gave you. Also, avoid fixating on any one perspective. All right, don't don't become a hobby horse Christian and everything you have a hammer and everything's a nail. Also, remember Chesterton's fence, right? If you encounter a fence, don't dismantle it until you understand its purpose. Right? If the church throughout church history has said something, that doesn't necessarily make it the gospel truth but you would be a fool to quickly dismiss it without understanding why. And don't take cheap answers for that as well. You should really dive in. Why did they do this? What what uh, errors were they avoiding? What were the issues that come up? And uh, what how did they see the Word of God 
in a way that you you're not able to see it so furthermore don't hastily pursue novelty i don't swiftly abandon teachings you have previously embraced right a wise man is not impulsive in change not given to much change scripture says so don't 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 run from your background like maybe you grew up in a baptist church and and or just a modern evangelical church you maybe there are things you can grow from and learn and develop in your theology but you don't need to run from that you don't need to always run from where you came from many people spend their lives doing that and constantly searching for something else right don't be impulsive yet a wise man will adapt upon receiving the truth so seek a multitude of counsel and most importantly here live and die by the word of god live and die by the word of god so as always brothers i pray this episode has been a blessing to you if you appreciate it give it a thumbs up share it on all your social media channels if you're not yet a christian what what are you waiting for repent of your sins and be forgiven and believe the gospel And if you are a believer, men, here is my message to you. Build, fight, protect, lead. This is the patriarchy. 